Good morning, everyone. That song always always stirs me up. I can't help but sing hallelujah. Sorry, I'm a bit like that. It's good to uh, good to praise the Lord uh, with song. So good to be with you here today. Uh, we had a, a good day yesterday with the young adults, and uh, we filled up our stomachs with chocolate and uh, and food over there at uh, Yarra Glen. But we also filled up our souls with uh, with the Word of God. So that was a, a good time of fellowship. But I would like you, uh, especially, to keep uh, Brother um, uh, Peter Brocklehurst in prayer, since he's uh, his daughter. We don't know whether she's saved or not, but um, yeah, he got a bit of a shock yesterday morning when he found out that news. So it was good to spend time with him and encourage him. So we have uh, a new series starting now, which will sort of be intersected with um, with the conference. Uh, we'll probably put a we won't do it next week, but we'll continue for probably a month, and we're going to be looking at Matthew. Chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. So I'll get you to turn in your Bibles there as we look at the whole chapter. We'll read the whole chapter this morning just to get us started and so we understand what we're going to be looking at. But the focus of this particular chapter is about the apostles. So we'll park ourselves in this chapter for, the, uh, for probably about a month now. And we'll read Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 to 42 this morning. Read with me. When he had called unto him his twelve disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sicknesses and manner of disease. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. The first, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the publican, James the son of Alphaeus, and Libaeus, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, or into any city of the Samaritans, enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as ye go, preach saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils. Freely ye have received, freely give. Provide neither gold, nor silver, nor brass in your purses, nor script for your journey, neither two coats, neither shoes, nor yet stave, for the workman is worthy of his meat. And into whatsoever city or town ye shall enter, inquire who in it is worthy, and there abide. Till ye go thence. And when you come into an house, salute it. And if the house be worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it be not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whosoever shall not receive you, nor hear your words, when you depart out of that city, house or city, shake off the dust off your feet. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves, but be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils, and they will scourge you in their synagogues, and ye shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what ye shall speak, for it shall be given to you in that same hour what ye shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, 
but the spirit of your father which speaketh in you. And the brother shall deliver up the brother to death, and the father the child. And the children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. But he that is endureth to the end shall be saved. But when they persecute you in this city, flee ye into another. For verily I say unto you, ye shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man be come. The disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. It is enough for the disciple that he be as his master, and the servant as his Lord. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more shall they call them of his household? Fear them not, therefore, for there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, and hid that shall not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, that speak ye in the light, and what ye hear in the ear, that preach ye upon the housetops. And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing, and one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear ye not therefore, ye are of more value than many sparrows. Whatsoever therefore shall whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. Think not that I have come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man, set a man at variance against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth uh, after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it. And he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. He that receiveth you receiveth me. And he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. He that receiveth a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he that receiveth a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whosoever shall give to drink unto one of these little ones a cup of cold water only in the name of a disciple, verily I say unto you, he shall in no wise lose his reward. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, once again we come before you rejoicing in the word that we hold in our hands and that we have access to. And Father, we just thank you and praise you that you speak to us today through this word. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit which has been shed abroad in our hearts and now speaks to us and teaches us your ways. Father, we ask that we would be taught today. We pray this, that we might grow into the people that you would have us to be that we would grow more into the image of this perfect Son whom you sent into this world to save sinners like us. And we pray that our lives would glorify you. Father, you deserve everything of us. You deserve every part of our heart. You deserve every part of our mind. You deserve to be indeed worshipped with all of our heart, mind, soul and strength and to be loved likewise. So, Father, we pray this morning that you would be glorified, that our focus would be on you, that the name of our, our Saviour, Jesus Christ, would be lifted up both here and in our lives as we go into this world again. 
And we pray once again that you would teach us your ways. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, the story of the 12 disciples, if you look at it as a story in and of itself, is a wonderful example of what having a relationship with Jesus Christ can be like. If you look at the way he interacted with them and the way they were with him, it's actually it's telling us a story of, of what a dynamic relationship is all about. Throughout the New Testament, we see an ebb and flow of this relationship, of this, of this bond that, that existed between Jesus and this special group of men. We see this, this relationship between a student and a teacher, between a Lord and a servant. And it was often marked with uh, rebuke from Jesus to them. He often told them off because they were going off on tangents and they were, they were being driven by sometimes their own lusts and their own uh, misgivings. And confusion was often on the disciples' side as they struggled to understand what Jesus was saying. You see, the message Jesus was delivering to them was he was, apart from saying he came to be the saviour of the world and he was the promised Messiah, but he was telling them things like, they're going to betray me and they're going to kill me. I'm going to be delivered into the hands of the Gentiles. I'm going to be crucified on that cross that they crucified criminals on. And they just could not get that in their head most of the time. It didn't, it didn't, it, they couldn't quite understand it. They saw the Messiah, someone who'd be sitting on a throne. And them ruling with him. They wanted that. Do you remember there was an argument? Once as Jesus is walking to Jerusalem on his way to his death, and there's John and James and, and their mum got involved in this one over here. And, the, and their mum came along and said, Oh, by the way, Jesus, you know, when you're sitting on the throne over there in Jerusalem, uh, do you mind if my sons can sit on both the left and right hand side of you? Jesus didn't take too kindly to that. Because they'd missed the whole point. It wasn't about the rule. It wasn't about all that sort of stuff. He was going to his death. And he probably had that thing on his mind. And they're there arguing and complaining because the other, other disciples got upset when that, when that stuff went on. So we find oftentimes the disciples getting rebuked, being rebuked by Jesus. But there were times of absolute tenderness and kindness and gentleness that he had with them as well. And you see his love towards this group who had left everything to follow him. And you just see the love that Jesus has for them, even though he, he, he rebukes them at times. And through all the doubts and the problems that existed with this group of men, they obviously had an amazing relationship with Jesus. And they were also privileged to see and, and hear things that the vast majority of people in the world could only dream about. Can you imagine spending three years with Jesus Christ? Can you imagine? Like if he came here today and he said... You know, just pick up and leave what you have and follow me and spend the next three years with me. Like, which of us wouldn't? Who of us here wouldn't? Just say, forget about the business, forget about the house, forget about whatever else. I'm just going to follow him and spend the next three years of my life with him, being taught by the Son of God, seeing miracles happen on a daily basis, watching the way he speaks, watching the way he prays, being able to see what a, a, a perfect relationship with God is really like. Give up everything for that. Yeah, the disciples were an absolutely blessed group of men. They were blessed to be and live with Jesus for those years. But there's a cost that comes with blessing most of the time, isn't there? There was a cost that came with those blessings. And blessings often come 
with cost. And even though each of these men was personally chosen by Jesus, they just just didn't choose to follow him in and of themselves. He chose every one of them, including Judas, who he knew would betray him from from the start. He chose them himself, but they answered the call. He didn't force them to come. He simply called them and said, come follow me. And most of them just dropped whatever they were doing and said, yep, I'm following. They dropped their nets if they were fishermen. They, they, if you were Matthew, you left your tax collector's booth. Um, and you find wherever they were, they followed Jesus and left all that they had. But there was a massive cost that came obviously with following Jesus. First of all, they left everything. They left their businesses. They left, their rela- they left relationships. They even... They didn't spend as much time with their family anymore either because at times they had to be away from their family for months. So that answer to that call came at a cost and if it's true for them, it's true for us. Let me ask you a question. How many ways have we been blessed by God? If their blessings that they received by God or from God came at a cost, How many blessings have we received? I imagine if we began to count the blessings that we have in this country and as as Christians, um, we would be surprised at how much we have that they didn't have and how much we have that most of the people in this world do not have. If there's great blessings that we've received, keep this in mind. If we've accepted those blessings, then there's a cost that has to be accepted as well. There's a responsibility that has to be borne that comes with those blessings. Being a follower of Jesus comes at a price. And we would be wise to listen to the words that Jesus told his disciples when he said, For unto whom whosoever much is given, of him much shall be required. And to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask the more. There's a simple principle here. Just as men who have been given much expect much in return, then those of us who have been given so much by the Lord will be expected to give much in return. Shock, horror. Jesus has high expectations of his children. How much have you been given today? When you compare your life to those who live in poorer countries on less than $2 a day, let me ask you, where do you sit in comparison to that? Have you been given more or less? Where do you stand compared to $2 a day that the majority of the world lives in? What about living in a country where you cannot even legally buy a Bible and we have a whole library just sitting in the back of this, uh, this room over here where you can freely buy whatever Christian book you like and have a choice of thousands. And people over there fear for their lives if they carry a Bible with them. They can't go to Kurong. They can't go to Word or any other bookshop around the, around the place and just buy a Bible and bring it down the road. You see many places in the world that's forbidden. What about those countries or in those places where you can't even legally meet together in a church? Do you 
value what you have here today. Because what we have here is, when you look at the vast majority of the world, doesn't have this. Doesn't have the facility, the facilities that we have. To live, to, sorry, to, to meet in a place that has air conditioning and, and seats and an organised sort of place. And we're free to, to do what, essentially what we wanted here, without someone looking through the window. to see whether we're breaking the law or not. We have no fear of our government here. We aren't in risk of our lives for what we believe. We aren't in fear of being able to express our own opinion. What about education? What sort of education do you have today? Because I guarantee you the education you have is, is first class compared to most of the people in the world. If you look at the, the poorer countries in this world who struggle to even get books, the education we have here is actually, or the freedom we have to learn whatever you want is pretty good. We have a healthcare system that most of the world doesn't enjoy. And we, we pray often for people with illnesses here but imagine if you didn't have a hospital system with specialists that supported and, and GPs and nurses and, and drugs and all those types of things that we rely on so much. Things would be a little bit different, I believe. But what about the police force? How many countries have corrupt, absolutely corrupt police forces? Imagine if something happened to you and you didn't have the confidence to call the police to come and actually help you out. We have that benefit here. The list goes on and on and on. We could go, we, we, we could literally exhaust days. If we wanted to count all the blessings that we have over here compared to the majority of people in the world. So answer me this. When we compare our lives to most of the people living in this world, including especially the Christians who are living overseas, I would like you to answer these two questions. Have you been given much by the Lord? Have you been given much? I think the answer should be an, a, an absolute yes. If you've been given much, the second question is, do you think that you've been committed much? Has Jesus committed much to you that you are responsible for? The answer to that should be yes. If you've answered yes to both of these, then much will be required of you and much will be asked of you. Peter declares in, in Mark chapter 10, verse 28, Peter says, Lo, Lord, we have left all and have followed thee. They left everything to follow him. Can we say the same for ourselves? Now, it doesn't mean that you leave houses and homes and families and the whole lot because Jesus isn't here physically to follow. But we can say that if we put Jesus first in everything that we do. If he is at the forefront of our thinking, if we put him first before our own desires and the, des and the things of the world. For those who belong to Jesus, the Bible has this to say. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So Jesus puts a very, very clear thing in front of us. Don't love what you see, the desires of the world, the, the corruption of the world, the sin of the world, and put that before your choices to follow Jesus. Who we are 
Who God calls us that we are and tells us that we are comes with responsibilities. The Bible gives us a number of titles in, the, in, in many places. It speaks of us as the children of God, the ambassadors of God. It speaks of us as more than conquerors. It speaks of us as priests of God to this generation that we live in now. It calls us so many wonderful things. The question is, do we live up to those titles? What we have been called and what we have been given comes with expectations. If you, if you call yourself his child, then I challenge you today to have the same expectations of yourself that he has for you. Is that fair enough? Have the same expectations for and of yourself that he has for you. Don't have different expectations. In fact, the most important thing for you, if, for your growth, is to understand what does Jesus want of me? What does he desire of me? What does he expect of me? And if my expectations for myself don't match with his, guess whose expectations are wrong? Not his, mine. So we have to line up our expectations with his. Expect more of yourself. Expect highly of yourself because he does. He doesn't have low expectations. Don't waste your days. Don't waste your life. Don't waste these small number of years that we have being caught between a, this world and the next. Live for Jesus today. Understand where your ultimate citizenship lies. Our citizenship is in heaven. That's our first citizenship. The second citizenship, if you're a member of Australia, or a citizen of Australia, comes second to that. We are first and foremost ambassadors from heaven to the earth. We are first and foremost citizens of heaven living on earth. So don't, be, don't let yourself be swayed and drawn between one and the other. You know, in Second Kings, in, sorry, First Kings chapter 18, verse 21, Elijah the prophet comes to the people of Israel and says this to them. He says, how long halt ye between two opinions? How long will you get stuck between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the sad thing is, that verse finishes with these words. And the people answered him not a word. They didn't know how to answer. What's your answer? If today you have a choice between choosing to follow Jesus and choosing to follow the world, which will you choose? Will we vacillate between one and the other? Will we continue to, to, to sway, be swayed one way or the other, choosing to live half like the world and half like a disciple of Jesus? Jesus was an absolutely wonderful teacher. And we're going to discover that now. But the first question we need to ask ourselves before we, we sit at his feet and we, we take the teaching is, have I chosen to follow him? The disciples did not waver on that. They chose to follow him. And there was one that, that betrayed him, but the rest gave their lives for him. 
Let's be the same. Let's be of the same attitude. Let's make that choice in our lives today. Let's look at look how wonderful a teacher Jesus was. You know, spending three years on a daily basis with the master, you could not even properly put that into words, what that would be like. I couldn't even imagine what it would be like. But what we see is the result of their time with Jesus was given to us by what happened at the end of their lives. Jesus took a ragtag group of individuals, simple fishermen, people with no, no education, very little standing in society. You wouldn't choose them if you had to get a group of people that, to change the world and to make a difference in society. You wouldn't go picking these people. He picked a group of essentially guys who were fishermen. I know some of you like fishing. But this is, that's essentially what they were. They, were. they were fishermen who worked either for their father's businesses or whatever. That's what they knew. He chose people like tax collectors, people that were hated by their own people because oftentimes they were actually very, very um, uh, 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 corrupt. He even picked a guy called a zealot. Do you know what a zealot is? Someone like a terrorist. Someone who, someone who resorted to violence to achieve his end. He grabbed these people. He took these people and turned them in three years to absolute spiritual leaders. In three years, he turned them into some of the greatest spiritual leaders the world has ever known. And he made them a promise in chapter 10, verse 22. And he says, And ye shall be hated of all men for my, my namesake. But he that endureth to the end shall be saved. These words ring true for these men. And they're a wonderful example for us today. They were not only hated for being followers of Jesus, but they endured to the end believing and never doubting Jesus. They never, they never um, recanted their faith. They never gave it up. In fact, they all died believing except for John. They all gave up their lives believing in what he had taught them and, and put their faith in who he was. And John, at the end of his life, a 90-year-old man, they exiled to a, uh, an island called Patmos. Too dangerous. And what I'd like to look at in these coming weeks, especially today, is a look at the disciples' training, which ultimately led to their success as Jesus' followers. I would like for us to examine the journey that they had with him for those three years as, as it's condensed in this particular uh, chapter over here. You know, a couple of years ago, we asked a simple question in one of our conferences, and it was, is a Christian a disciple as well? Remember that question? Is a Christian a disciple of Jesus as well? And the, the unanimous answer that we gave at the end of it was yes, every time. If you're a Christian, you're automatically a disciple. And a disciple is someone who actually follows. If that's true, then as Christians, we need to examine our own progress with this following. We need to examine our own walks, our own relationship with the Lord, because that relationship is the most important thing that we possess. There is nothing more important than that. Everything else should be secondary. Every other relationship should be secondary. There should be no relationships that we have, not with families, not with friends, not with, with whoever it is that comes between that relationship. 
if we do, as Jesus told uh, the church in the, uh, in the book of Revelation, you've left your first love. You know who the first love is? Him. It should be him always. The disciples who followed Jesus while he was on the earth valued that relationship so much that they were not willing to trade their lives for it. They were not willing to save their own lives at the expense of that. They were happy to give it up. Do we value Jesus above our own lives? Are we real disciples? Jesus says it very plainly in Luke chapter 14, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, is Jesus saying to hate people? No, because that's the exact opposite of what he says. What he's saying is the love that we have for him should be so great that every other love is almost like hatred. Everything else should come secondary to the love that I have for him. Now, let me ask you a question. Who here can raise their hand and tell me that they have that type of love for Jesus this morning? Either you're too embarrassed to raise your hand or you realise you don't have the type of love that he's asked for. Don't worry if I was sitting with you. I probably wouldn't raise my hand either. These are the questions I want us to ask ourselves over the coming weeks. I'd like for us to examine over the coming weeks this chapter. And we find, we find in this chapter, he starts by calling him disciples, and then in a couple of verses he calls them apostles. I want us to ask ourselves the question, why does he change there? Why is there a change in their designation? And I want us to find out what he did with these men that made them so spiritually strong. But before we go to that, I want, I want us to turn back to chapter 9 because I'd like us to look at the background on which this chapter builds. Now, we won't necessarily read all chapter 9. I'm just going to go through it and give you some, some, some points, but you may want to follow. In chapter 9, this is a, a jam-packed chapter. Okay, We see Jesus start off by forgiving the sin of a man who they bring with palsy. In other words, a man who, who is crippled, who can't walk. And they, they bring him into Jesus and he, and he forgives this man's sins. And the scribes get all worked up about it. And they say, how dare you forgive some man's sins? Only God can forgive sins. To which he says, spot on. But what's easier? What's easier to say to someone who with palsy, stand up and take up your bed and go. Or to forgive someone's sins. And, he's, and they didn't answer and he, and he said, well, just let me, let me show you. And he says, get up. And the man with palsy got up and walked off. So he heals a man of palsy and forgives his sins. And in verse 8, I'd like you to pay attention to something. It says, but when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God, which had given such power unto men. So how many people were watching this particular event? multitudes of them were watching this stuff going on. There were thousands of people that were literally seeing what Jesus was doing. And then we find that Jesus calls Matthew in this chapter, the writer of this gospel. And the guy's a tax collector. But when Jesus calls him, he just picks up his, his stuff and goes. And it says, it says in, in, in this, this particular passage, it says, 
Jesus attracted all the outcasts of society, all the, all the dregs, all the people that no one else wanted, all the people that were despised and hated by everyone else. It says that many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. How's that? So Jesus is there with his disciples and he's teaching his disciples and the following starting to grow. But the majority of people that are sitting around with Jesus, listening to him, are people who are who society does not like. So the Pharisees got their, themselves worked up as well. And they said, how dare you sit around with prostitutes and tax collectors, publicans, all these types of people. How dare you sit around spending time with those people? You should be spending time with us. Because we are the holy ones. We're the right ones. How dare you spend time dirtying yourself with these types of people? And Jesus rebukes them. And he says that they should have mercy instead of, uh, of judgment. They didn't come to, to save. He who is, who is sick is in need of a physician. Not he who is not sick. The Bible says that he then heals a woman who had an issue of blood for 12 years. She had a hemorrhage for 12 years. And then it says that he then revives a girl who had probably died. They came to him and, and, and they were convinced that she was dead. She was out. I don't know whether she was breathing or not. But he went in there in the, in the actual room with her and he, and he says, no, she's not dead. And he picks her up by the hand. They laughed him to scorn, it says in this passage. Because they said, no, she is dead. What are you talking about? Next minute he's picking her up by the hand. He's saying, oh, come on, let's get up. And in verse 26 of chapter 9, it says, And the fame hereof went abroad into all the land. So he's got multitudes seeing what's going on. And his fame is starting to grow and to spread all over Israel. The Bible then says in that passage, it says that he heals two blind men and tells them, don't go telling anyone else about this. I want you to keep it quiet. And in verse 31, it says, but they... When they were departed, spread abroad his fame into all the country. As they did the exact opposite of what he said. They couldn't help themselves, but spread what had been done for them. And it says, and we see, it says the multitudes marveled, saying it was never so seen in Israel. Nothing had ever happened like this before throughout the whole history of evil. When Jesus cast out a devil from a dumb man. In verse 35, it says, When Jesus went about all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people, that is so different to what we see with, with these prosperity preachers and people who apparently heal people. There was no disease that Jesus couldn't heal. If you were missing a limb, if he touched you, the limb grew back. If you were born with a disease, he touched you and you were healed automatically. If you were born blind, if you didn't have eyes, you'd have eyes. <laughs> you don't see that sort of stuff happening today with these people who claim to have all these healing powers. There was no sickness, no disease. There was no devil that Jesus could not sort out. And we see during this time that the, his fame was growing. His reputation as a man from God, even under heavy attack from the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, was rising in the eyes of the people throughout the land. He was going around from town to town while his disciples followed and they were watching everything he was doing, going from one place to another to another, watching amazing things, one happening after the other. And can you imagine at the end of the day, 
after Jesus has healed people who were blind and people who were lame and, and casting out devils, can you imagine the conversations around the dinner table? Can you imagine the conversations? Okay, as they were sitting there, probably having a, a dinner and things are starting to go dark, you know, and maybe James might say, what was that? I've never seen that before. Or how did that occur, Lord? Or how did you get that guy to grow a limb back completely? Can you imagine the conversation? So he went from town to town. His disciples followed him, watched him, and they began to learn about him and what he was like. They began to learn about the message of God. And look at verse 36 in chapter 9. It says, But when he saw the multitudes... He was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Do you, do you understand that? So he said, he said to his disciples, Look. Look how many people I've healed. Look how many people are sinners. Look how many people are in desperate need of salvation. He goes, look at the harvest. It's white. It's in desperate need. Pray God that he sends laborers into this harvest. He wanted them to understand the absolute desperate situation around them that was occurring. People sinking into sin. Slipping into eternity. They had no shepherd, he said. There was no one to lead them in the word of God. The, the men who had the responsibility to lead them were themselves corrupt and not teaching what they were supposed to teach. This lesson that he was building his disciples up into was one that was probably building for a while. And a very important one. He had worked very hard to teach them the truth. He had healed many people to demonstrate his credentials. And he wanted them above all to recognize that with all this healing and preaching and traveling from town to town, they were there for a reason. They weren't, that wasn't in and of themselves the reason he came. The reason was to share the gospel and reach people that were lost. And this can only be done by people. By people. That's why he said, pray that God sends out laborers who are willing to work and to share that truth. Why was Jesus doing all this work? So many things, so many healings, teachings, confrontations with leaders, so many discussions, so many cities that he visited in such a short chapter. Why? He was preparing his disciples for something. He was teaching them a lesson. He was preparing them for a job of their own. You know how I know this? Because the very next verse tells us something. The last verse of chapter 9 says, Guys, pray that God will send out 
laborers into this field. Pray that he, that he sends his laborers. And the very next verse, which is Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. Look what he says. And when he called unto him his twelve disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. The first, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the publican, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Lebaeus, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him, these twelve Jesus sent forth. And commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, or into any city of the Samaritans, enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as ye go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick. Cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils. Freely you have received, freely give. You know the prayer that Jesus asked them to pray? He got them to answer. Did you understand that? So in one verse he's saying, you pray to God that he sends out the labourers. The next, the next verse he's saying, come here, off you go. Did you like that? Pray to God for an answer. And guess what? Now I'm going to make you the answer. And look at the things that he's getting him to go and do. The same things that he was doing among all the cities. He gave them the same authority that he had over every sickness and devil and everything else. And to pronounce the same message that he was doing. Guess what he was doing? He was showing them what they had to do. So they would know how to imitate it. couple of lessons to take away from this and we'll close up the first lesson I would like us to consider is that we may be the answer to our own prayers sometimes do you get that we may be the answer to our own prayers now I'm not saying that we are in place of prayer but we may be praying for God to do something when all the while God is saying I've told you what to do. I'm telling you to do that. I'm calling you to go out and to do that thing. My, my counsel to you this morning would be, before we pray to God for something, ask yourself this question. What does he want me to do? in relation to this. If we're about to pray to God for something, we should first consider, does he want me to do something first? Let me give you an example. You can pray to God to get you a job, can't you? Can God provide you a job? But how about if you, if you prayed to the Lord, Lord, get me a job, but never go out to look for a job. Sound a bit silly, wouldn't it? What about someone who prays for, Lord, please save my brother or please save another member of my family, but never has the courage to actually share the gospel with them? Does that make sense? 
oftentimes we neglect the responsibility we have because we want to, in football terms, handball this one to God. Let him take care of it because it absolves me of my responsibility in the whole thing. If I can keep asking God for this and it doesn't come, it doesn't come to pass, I can say, God hasn't answered that prayer yet. Instead, we should be praying, please God, give me something to do. What can I do in this situation? You know, Isaiah in chapter 6, the Lord speaks to him and the Lord first calls him and says, Isaiah, I want you to, you know, to be my prophet. And Isaiah says, oh, I can't. He sees God in all of his, he sees the Lord Jesus Christ on his throne in heaven. And he, and he realised his own sinfulness and he says, well, woe is me. I, I, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live in a people of unclean lips. I've realised that I've actually been such a sinner. How can I possibly see what I'm seeing and be called of you? So God brings a, a, an angel down and he actually cleanses his lips and he, he cleanses him of his sin. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8, once he'd been cleansed of his sin... It says, also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and whom will go for us? Do you know Isaiah's response? He says, then said I, here am I. Send me. Why? Because Isaiah had been prepared. He'd been cleansed. He'd been given everything he needed. All he needed to know that he, that he was right with God. Now he could do anything for God. Let me ask you, how are you different to Isaiah? We've been cleansed of all of our sin. Is there anything that God can't do through you? We should have the same attitude. When something comes up and there's a need, the first question we should ask is, or we should say is, I'm here. You want to send me? We shouldn't be praying for other people to go when we can actually go. This brings us to the next lesson. So the first lesson is we may be the, the, the answer to our own prayers and God might be telling us to do something. If we have a burden on our heart, it may simply be because God's put that burden there to see what we're going to do. And the next part of that whole equation is that God wants action. God is not into people contemplating their navels sitting in a monastery. He's not into the whole meditation thing where you don't do anything. He's not into this continual loop of, I'm not ready yet. I'm not ready yet. When did he call Matthew? In chapter 9. When did he send that Matthew? In chapter 10. How long do you think Matthew had to prepare himself? Jesus demonstrated how to live life according to God's standard. And it wasn't sitting in something and learning over and over again and just filling up my head with knowledge but never doing anything about it. What's more important for God is whatever you learn, be it ever so small, God wants us to put it to use. Because the Bible says that if I learn much, the problem that's probably going to arise is my pride is going to be lifted up. But if I start putting God's word into action, there's no problem with pride. 
Because putting God's word into action keeps me humble all the time. But if I fill up my head with knowledge, continually learning, but never doing, then I set myself up for a fall. God is a God of action. Understand that. God doesn't sit back and wait for things to happen. God has been active from the beginning of creation up till now. Jesus said when he walked the earth, my father doth work and so do I. He hasn't stopped. And guess what? A good father expects his children to do, to come work with him. So they learn how to work as well. Do we work for the Lord? How much time do we spend working for the Lord? What are we doing? If you had to divvy up your week and calculate the amount of time you go to sleep, you go and work, you go and spend time with your family, you go and, you go and uh, eat, you spend time on entertainment or whatever else it is, tell me how much of that is actually working for the Lord? That's a simple test, isn't it? How much are we doing for God? It's not the pastor who has the only job of serving God. And serving everyone else. The Bible says that he becomes servant of all. But guess what you all are as well? Servants of all. I'm meant to help you get to where your God wants you to be. But there's an equal responsibility on every one of us here. To serve one another in love. And to go and serve God out there. God is a God of action and he expects his children to be people of action. Even God's words are actions. When God speaks something, it happens. Something occurs. He speaks and what he says happens. And God does not spend time training us for no reason. When he spends his time healing and teaching and preaching and discussing and arguing, for he's in front of his disciples, he did it for a reason. Because he wanted them to imitate him. He was about to send them out by themselves. And say, guys, now I'm sending you to do the same thing that I did. Can you imagine the stress? Can you imagine like the... Well, he wants to do what he did? Yes. I'm going to empower you. I've shown you. You know the message. Now I'm going to send you two by two. I want you to go to all the cities all around Israel and I want you to go there. And he gives them specific instructions on what to do. When you come into a town, you are to look for a house of someone who's sympathetic. You stay with that person. And while you're there, you, you, you rely on that person to feed you and look after you. But while you're there, you preach the word and you heal people of their sicknesses. You, you cast out devils. You do everything that I did. And it says, if they don't want to listen to you, just shake off the... the the dust off your feet and you walk off because it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah. It wasn't very tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah who had, who had fire rain down upon them. But look at verse 6 in chapter 10 as we close up. Matthew chapter 10 verse 6. He says to them, But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick. Cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils. Freely you have received, freely give. Look what he tells them to do. Go, move, preach the gospel, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils. Are they all doing words? They're all doing. He wasn't telling them to go and spend another year in a, a monastery or a year in Bible college. Or He doesn't tell them that. He goes, I want you to go out. You know enough. 
You guys have to go out there and do all these things. These are all action words. And they had now the opportunity to imitate the one who had done these things already. This morning, I want to ask you, what would Jesus have you do? What do you know about Jesus that you can imitate? They did it. They did, they did stuff that was amazing. They cast out devils and did all types of amazing things. Later on, the Bible says that they came back to him rejoicing and saying, look at what we did. We cast out devils. They were like shocked. They, could, they, they even did it. But let me ask you a question this morning. If we are disciples as well, if God has sent us into this world as, as ambassadors, let me ask you a question. What have you seen or read or know that Jesus did that you can imitate? What do you know that he wants you to imitate? Does he want you to be more meek than you are now, like he was? Does he want you to be perfectly truthful in everything you say, as he was? Does he want you to be kind, as he was? To be merciful, as he was? Does he want you to forgive, as he forgave? While people were crucifying him on a cross, he was forgiving them while they were killing him. Is it a type of forgiveness that you display today? Does he want you to be as bold as he was bold? Does he want you to be as courageous as he was, steadfast as he was, obedient to the Father as he was? Does he want you to be as focused as he was, to be as submitted as he was to the Father? And there's so much more. What do you already know that he wants you to be like? How much do you know about Jesus today? How many of you have been Christians for years and you don't know what Jesus wants you to do? What does he want you to do today? Do what you know to be true now. What you know to be true, do it. Obey. Don't let what you don't know stop you from doing what you do know. There are so many people I see who call themselves Christians who because of the smaller few things they don't know, it stops them and cripples them from doing the things they obviously should be doing. I mean, I look at this church and I see plenty of empty seats here. Tell me where in the Bible it says that it's more important to go to somewhere else than it is to be in church. Do you think Jesus would be regular in church? Do you expect your pastor to be regular in church? Your, your expectation is, 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 is well-founded. It's correct. You expect me to be here without fail every Sunday unless something's gone on or unless something else has been organised and I've reorganised something else. Tell me, do you have less of an expectation for yourselves? And how about a Wednesday evening? When we come together to pray, let me ask you a question. What's holding you back from coming? What conception do you have that is holding you back? What's too hard for you? What hurdle is too high for you that stops you from coming together to pray together with us? One time in a week. 
Do you expect Jesus would be here on a Wednesday evening? I would. I expect he'd be here every Wednesday leading us in prayer. I expected he'd be here every Sunday morning leading us. And I would gratefully actually hand over this pulpit to him as well. Do what you know to be true already. Don't stop doing what you know to be true by using what you don't know as an excuse. That's the devil's games. Oh, I'm not ready yet. That's the devil's, that's the devil's talking. That's not, that's not what God wants you to do. Don't fall for the devil's lies. Our God is a God of action and Jesus was a man of action. If love is the goal of our lives and love is always a verb, it's not a fluffy type of noun, it always does something. It gets its hands dirty. How do I know that this message is for me and for all of you? Just as Jesus called his disciples by name. You see he listed every one of their names. Do you think he does that for no reason? He lists every one of their names and says, these are the 12 that I've sent. These are the 12 that witnessed. These are the 12 that I'm sending, I'm empowering. And then he says, ye have freely ye have received, freely give. Let me remind you, Jesus calls every one of you by name. He knows your name. The Bible says he's written your name down in a book in heaven. He knows you personally and he calls you personally and he calls you his child. God doesn't forget the names of his children like some parents do. We have been given an amazing salvation. We've been given much love, patience, mercy, grace. We were given it all freely. It comes at a cost though. Freely we've received. Freely give. God bless you. Thank you.